Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Reza- now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I- Allison, where did you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm super excited to bring in my guest. Now, as you know, normally I would be catching up with the bad boy of podcasting, Tony Thaxton at the top, but he insists on playing the show in Chicago. So he's not here right now, which means I cannot find out how he's doing. I can't update him on my big disgusting news, which is that I held a piece of is it squirrel poop is it possum poop in my hand so you can imagine how i'm feeling right now not great about that and i'm not going to belabor this point but i was wearing socks i stepped outside i forget why some something involving why would why would i go outside you're wondering i know uh something involving my dog or my kids or something and then i walked back inside and i felt something underfoot and I reached down, and then I looked in my hand, and there it was, a piece of rodent shit. So I, I, I never have never stopped washing my hands. I'm still, I'm still inside washing them viciously, thinking about what now, what now. So anyway, that's going on. And now this is the kind of thing I'd be talking to Tony about, because for some reason, Tony and I have carved out a little podcasting niche where we talk about, you know, why am I talking to you guys like you've never heard the show? You know, termites, millipedes, disgusting things like that. Okay. Anyway, enough of that. This might be the fastest I've ever brought in the guest. And, and I bet you're thinking, thank God. I know. Okay. I'm so excited to bring to the show. He's a writer. He's a radio personality. He's a podcast host. You know him from Wit. You know him from The Hilarious World of Depression, which is also a book. You know him from Depression Mode. You may have heard me on that show. Uh, also, a number of books like Conservatize Me and Dear Luke, We Need to Talk About Darth, Pop Culture Correspondences. Please put your hands together and welcome to the show, John Moe. Yay. Yay. Hello. Welcome. Wow. I'm... I'm uh... Any preparation I had, any kind of like mental space I was getting to has been dis- just destroyed by the droppings that you ended up in, in your hand. With. I know. I know. And, you know, th- I'm going to say something and you're going to think that sounds like something that, that it sounds like she's lying. What I'm going to say is like, I'm not truly a hypochondriac. And I know that yeah. that's what a hypochondriac would say. Um However, and maybe it's just because we've been locked in our homes now for a couple of years and disease and illness seems very real and all around us. 
I do feel like holding rodent poop in my hand yeah. is uh, the way you catch some kind of the plague. I don't know. <laughs> You've crossed a line, certainly. You're, you're in some new territory. You're oh. right to be washing your hands. You might just want to go get new hands. It's like when you yes. have like really old leftovers in a Tupperware container. You're just like, throw out the Tupperware. Yes. Just don't, don't even deal with that. Yes. Now, you might just w- need to do that with your hands. So I washed my hands for, uh, for you know, a considerable amount of time. I sang happy birthday twice. And then I was like, okay, I'm good on the hand front. Yeah. And then the socks from which I had oh. pulled. Here's the thing, though. I really like these socks. They're pink. Yeah. They have black polka dots on them. They fit well. Some socks are... You can are- launder the socks. I laundered them, but I wondered, should I just be throwing them out? In the same way that I'm going to throw out my hands and get a new pair, I thought, I'm hanging on yeah. to these these vectors. Yeah, these trauma socks. I mean, are <laughs> they going to be, are they going to make you think of this every time you see them? Or do you have enough of a history built up that uh, your relationship with the socks can overcome it? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, these socks and I were fast friends. Yeah. I haven't had them that long. But I do feel that we we have uh, something to draw on prior to the poop. Okay. So All I right. think it'll That's be promising. Okay. Yeah, I think thank you. Be okay. So John Mo, um, yes. I uh, was a guest on Depression Mode, and I felt instantly like we were kindred spirits. And yes, but I think that's probably because you're such a good podcast host, radio personality, and you're so like open. And I bet a lot of people feel like you're a kindred spirit. It it may be. I mean, I'm. I'm much more at ease um, in this format, I think, than I am in real life. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I come at everything, every interview I do, um, from a, a point of a lot of curiosity, and 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 usually, you know, if I'm talking to somebody on a show, I've had curiosity about their work or their lives, and then the you know, so I'm already in that, that place of curiosity. So the, the interaction, the conversation just, uh, just makes that blossom all the more. And, um, you know, and especially if I'm talking to somebody who might host a show also, or is a communicator, uh, professionally, then it's, you know, it's, it's like meeting somebody who speaks your native language. And, um, it's very comforting. Well, I, you mentioned curiosity, when I was on your show, while I was on your show, I was thinking, oh, I have to get you on my show because I have all sorts of curiosity about you and about your backstory. Ah, yeah. See, that's the advantage. Like I could, I could go, I could figure out what it is and then just keep pecking away. And then, and then now again, the tables have turned. Now the tables have turned. Um, so you are very open about battling what, uh, you mention in your book as Clint D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> clinical depression. Um, how are you doing now? Doing pretty well. Um, I the the diagnosis that I got uh, coming up on like sixteen years ago now, um, you know, maybe more um, was was a revelation because I was in my mid thirties by then, and I had thought that I just had this deep shameful secret, um, and you know nobody else was going through it. 
I just had to keep it hidden the rest of my life. And then I found out that it was something that I had and not something that I was. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of ups and downs um, since then. You know, I've, I've been through some stuff and I've got uh, – some some medication that's worked for me and I've got really good therapy that's worked for me and so I'm I'm very fortunate to have access to both those things. Um COVID's been a blow. It's been a a, a rough time and with you know I got I got laid off from my job at um Minnesota Public Radio, a big big company. And um it was sort of and I'd been in public radio for years and so it was you know, like playing for the Yankees or at least the Mets. And, um, and then to just be let go, even though a lot of me was saying, Oh, you know, I had been thinking about this anyway. I'd been thinking about going independent anyway. Here's some severance money. This is great. This is the best thing, Mm -hmm. but it, it kind of messed me up. And with that and, and just trying to get a new show and a new business going, um, there's a lot of stress in my life. So, you know, for people in that situation, what I always, what I always say, um, is you can have the same life that the normies have. You can have the same life that a lot of people can, can just achieve without thinking about it, but you just have to think about it. So it just means a lot more work, you know? So when the, the distortions start to come in of, you know, oh, you're, you've always been a failure, you know, like any setback you get is like this, this is the truth and this is what all things mm-hmm. secretly are. Yeah. Um, so that voice is, has been a little louder for the last year or so. Um, but it just means that I have to work harder to, to push it away and, and see reality. What reason did they give for the layoff? And were you, what was your role at Minnesota public radio? Um, they told me it was economic um, with the COVID uh slow down and crisis and, and media. Um, I know I, I, you know, I, I don't have access to the books. Um, all I can do is just take what they tell me. Um, I was hosting the hilarious world of depression there, which was a show that I created and, um, a show that was, I thought pretty successful getting good numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't really know, and I don't want to get into a lot of speculation. Um, but I was there for, I was there since like 2006. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a while. Um, and I did a lot of great things while I was there. I made a lot of great friends. And, you know, I, I kind of, I try to remember the great opportunities and the, you know, how welcomed I've been in the community around the Twin Cities as a result of that. And because it was a big company, you know, I had a chance to to get fans and listeners and kind of like-minded people coming to my work from all over the world. So, you know, that was a wonderful thing. And and now, though, like, I, I had to do a lot of that through radio. Um, and now I don't. You know, now, now we have this, you know, the, the fences came down and we all rushed the stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're all, you know, we can all have that audience. Yeah, I know of other people who were let go at the beginning of the pandemic too. And yeah. it like Yeah, and tough in media. Yeah. It's uh it's a common story, mm-hmm. but I think it does for, th- there's no one that's like, "Oh, thank you. Perfect timing." <laughs> right. <laughs> How wonderful. Pandemic. Yes. My I, I'm about to have a second kid start college. This is great. Yeah. And I actually 
bought a car the day before I got laid off. So that was pretty cool. Um, but you know, it's, it, it changes the way I have to tell the stories I want to tell, but it doesn't change my ability to tell those stories. And, you know, in, in about in 2016, I made a big shift to talking about mental health as the, the focus of what I did in media. It basically, it got a big response and it seemed to make a real significant difference in people's lives. And so I, I decided then this is, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to keep doing. And, you know, maybe it'll be at one place. Maybe it'll be at another place. Maybe it'll be on a podcast or in a book or in a speech, but I'll just keep doing this and then, the, you know, find places that want to pay me to do it. And I have. So what was your, what was your initial career aspiration? Did you start as a writer? I started really as an actor. I was, uh, I studied that in college. I was, you know, high school theater kid and college theater kid and grad school theater kid. Um, I went to grad school for, for acting and I really, I figured it was just my thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I kept writing kind of along the way. And then I was a writer in, I I was an actor in Seattle. Um, that's where you grew up, right? Yeah. I grew up in the Seattle area. And no matter how much we told ourselves, you could make it as an actor in Seattle. It was really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And and I um, I was loath to move to New York or L.A. I was just – I didn't want to. Um, and then I did a play that was just so bad. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I might not be um, Eugene O'Neill, but I can write a better play than this one. Um, and so I started writing and a lot more opportunity came along and, uh, I kind of shifted to, to writing and, you know, wrote plays. I, I was an editor at Amazon for a while. And, um, and then when a job came up in radio, it was kind of a combination of, of writing and performance because I would write my own scripts and, you know, present my voice in a way that was designed to reach people. So, you know that that format's changed a little over the years from radio to podcasting, but it's it's basically the same effort. And what was that radio job that opened up? Uh, I was at KUOW, which is a station in Seattle, um, and I was working on a show called Rewind. It was a weekly kind of comic news and review kind of thing. Like let's recap the week's news and have a little fun with it and do little bit of news of the weird, but also just, you know, a little satire. Um, so I did sketches and did some writing and producing for that and kind of learned, learned along the way. And then that got, that ended in 2003. And um, I kind of elbowed my way onto the air um, as a, you know, newscaster, midday host, filling in for the talk show hosts. And, um, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that I've heard a lot of people do this in different professions. Like you, it's a form of fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I thought, okay, I need to sound like I'm on public radio. And so for the first year or two, I just acted the part of how a public radio guy sounded. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, I'll see if I can recreate it here. Um, 
10.58 in Seattle looks like backups on I-90 going across the Mercer Bridge and on 5.20 as usual. Later today, a speech by Noam Chomsky, something like that. So good. Um, so the vocal yeah. quality. Yeah, yeah. You, you try to sound kind of concerned and a little constipated <laughs> was, the, was the idea that I was going for. But then, <laughs> then one day... I was late in getting all my, my newscast stuff ready and I didn't, I was just distracted and I had to hit the mic and talk and it came out more like, okay, there's traffic on 520. It's a total mess. You don't want to go on there if you can. It's going to rain this afternoon. Of course, we live in Seattle and uh, coming up on fresh air is, uh, you know, this guy. And that's when everything changed. That's oh, when, really? when people started responding People started writing in. I got invitations to do stuff on, you know, national shows. That's because, so interesting. And I, ju I just stuck with it, and I talked like a normal guy. <laughs> so it really helped. What do you think they were responding to? I think they were responding to um, a directness and a sincerity that I still try to get across, mm -hmm. um, where – if I'm telling a story, whether it's, you know, about the Seattle City Council in 2003 or whether it's interviewing Allison Rosen uh, in 2021, she's the best. She's got it in space. She, she's an it girl. <laughs> um, I, I, tr I try to communicate to a listener what I find so fascinating about this person so that they can share in the fascination. And I envision it as I'm talking to somebody across the table with a cup of coffee in my hand. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's my wife, sometimes it's one of my kids. But um, often when I, you know, my, my family will say, hey, you know, who have you interviewed lately? And I'll say, oh, I interviewed Allison Rosen. And here's, here's what was interesting about what we talked about. And trying to get that one person across the table to, to understand it and to appreciate it. Just, it guides everything that I, that I try to do. I used to host a, a technology show a few years ago for marketplace and my kids were, were younger at the time, obviously. Um, but they were ranging from like, uh, three to 10 years old. And they would say, well, what did you talk about at work today? Cause they were hoping it was like video games or something cool. <laughs> And I would tell them about it, and then I would see if they understood what I was saying mm -hmm. or if they would be, like, just zoning out and walking away. And that let me know how I did that day. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> like, if they could understand what was so cool about this new supercomputer being developed, great. You know, and if not, then try harder next time. So once you stopped trying to mimic that public radio way of speaking – yeah. Is that the like was that the last time you ever did that? So was it your natural speaking voice from then on out? Yeah, I mean, I sometimes you still have to do some announcery stuff mm -hmm. here and there and you know, I I try to sound like me, but then again also like I probably sound different right now than I did on my show when I talked with you at least in the in the tracking and the you know part where it's just the host reading things. Um because it's a it's a different circumstance. I had my daughter, my youngest daughter is now 13. She came down to my my office/studio 
and listen to me record like some ad reads or something. And she said, oh, you, you sound different. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, that's the one thing I pride myself on yeah. is not sounding different. And she she said, well, it's just it's the things you're talking about. And you sound like you're trying to explain products to me. And I said, well, yeah, I, I kind of guess I am. And maybe that's just a different format. Mm -hmm. But um, but I still, you know, I. I, I tell people all the time when I, you know, edit scripts for other people or when I've worked with even on people's writing, even when my kids write papers for college now, I'll say, like, read what you've written out loud to someone, you know, to your roommate or someone else in the dorm and see if it makes sense. And, and then explain the point you're making to them without looking at your paper and see if that makes more sense. And whichever one it is you know, let that guide your writing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think public radio is, I, I have a lot of love for what it can be. I get really disappointed when it doesn't live up to that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it sometimes falls into it, uh, a feeling of infallibility about itself. And I, and I believe it's, it's, I, I can't verify it. It's impossible to verify, but as an organization, it spends a lot of time talking about how great it is mm -hmm. in order to get people to donate. Yeah. And I think it's some, that, that mentality kind of permeates and it's hard to, um, think, well, how can we be better? How can we be more direct? How mm -hmm. can we serve? You know, what, how many more interesting stories can we cover that we aren't? I you know, do. What voices can we present? I do sometimes listen and think, Ugh, why are you talking like that? And I, I <laughs> yes. should not even be saying this because, or I'm sure someone's like, you're one to talk because people tell me all the time I have, I think they tell every woman who speaks into a microphone, they have vocal fry, but people like to let me know all the things about the way I speak that they notice. So all that being said, I sometimes listen to public radio and I think, why are you, why is everyone talking this way? Like yeah. what is happening? Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there is rampant misogyny among people who listen to audio production. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're guilty of being a woman. It's, it's like in, in mental health, like back in the 19th century, pretty much being a woman made you qualify for an asylum right. somewhere. You're, hy you're hysteric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're hysterical. And um, and so, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. But there are, you know, there are a lot of voices, a lot of younger voices, um, a lot of voices from different backgrounds that that kind of pop out and you hear them like Elsa Chang on NPR. And then you just think, oh, don't don't let them ruin you, <laughs> don't yeah. let them make you sound like everybody else. But, you know, that's that's also been demystified by by podcasting. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, before podcasting, I remember when they would look for a host for something, it was a really vaunted position and they would, they, they would talk about hostiness. Like if we hire a host, they need to have hostiness. And I said, what does that mean? Well, you know, they need to be warm and intelligent and, and inviting. And I'm like, so they need to be like all the other hosts that are already there. That's no good. <laughs> um, and but I, wait, and I wouldn't, think, but wouldn't warm, intelligent, and inviting be sort of just a a prerequisite for someone who's on air? You, you'd think so, um, but I think 
what they were after with hostiness was, you know, uh, Bob Edwards has hostiness. Robert Siegel has hostiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that thing that I'm talking about where I'm like, why are you talking that way? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, and there's probably some concern about uh, if the, if there are a lot of younger voices or a lot of, um, you know, diversity among the voices, then the olds with all the money might not donate as much. Um, right. You know, and I don't know if that's, if that's the belief on high that's held to, but I know that a lot of public radio is built around making the olds feel comfortable. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, so can we talk a bit about your, this is a very a broad sweeping question, but Great. Um, what was your childhood like? I know you had a couple brushes with death. Yeah. That left <laughs> you traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. Trauma that I didn't fully understand for a long time. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle um, in a suburb called Federal Way, which is named after the highway that goes through it, which is odd. Um, and I, um, my parents were from Norway. My parents immigrated from Norway. And um, my dad, well, I often start this with World War One, um, but they they, uh, they were kids during World War Two mm-hmm. when the Nazis invaded Norway, and every day they feared for their lives because people could be taken away. Um, my grandfather, my mom's father, had the only radio in his town, and it was contraband mm. because they didn't want people listening to the BBC yeah. and getting updates. Um. He hid in the barn from the Nazis with his radio. Jeez. My other grandfather, um, my dad's dad, lived down in they lived down in Oslo in the big city, and he worked as a, a printer and uh, printed one of the uh, underground opposition newspapers. Oh wow! Um, my dad grew up when he was you know uh, twelve years old was on his out on his bike at night around the city delivering the newspapers, delivering the resistance newspapers. And they would take the grips off the ends of their uh, bicycle handles. They'd roll up the newspapers and shove them in there. And then they'd just bike right by the Nazi soldiers on their way, you know, and to put it mildly, they could have gotten in trouble. Um, (laughs) But your dad never did. He never did. Nobody got in trouble. Um, The, you know, his, his dad's life was cut short by, I think stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's no therapists available. So my dad drank mm-hmm. um, and smoked cigarettes because that's what people did. And he moved to America and that continued. The, the drinking continued all through my life. But, you know, whatever you grow up in is your normal. And so I thought that's just what dads did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to laugh at like leave it to beaver for how unrealistic it was or Brady Bunch, how unrealistic that, you know, like anytime there was a dad who was like clear and, you know, talked in (laughs) this sort of sage advice way, I thought that's just weird. Um, But we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about his drinking. We didn't talk about the, the certainly about the trauma that they had endured because to them it was a survival story. It was, they saw it as good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my brother 
chose uh, narcotics over alcohol, but continued the same behavior. My older brother um, and my sister turned to books and academics, which turns out was the right answer. Yeah. That's what you should do um, to escape things. Um, that I guess. Younger sister? Maybe not. Older sister. Older. I'm the youngest of four. Okay. Um, but both my older sisters were a little more uh, academically inclined. I turned to theater um, because it was this wonderful imitation of life. You know, you could make your life into anything you want it to be, or you could be handed a script and be told, this is going to be your life while you're here. Mm -hmm. This is your name. This is your relationship to everybody else. This is what you're going to say. This is what they're going to say. At the end, strangers will clap for you. Right. And I thought this was just wonderful. And, you know, I had a, I had a modicum of talent enough to keep doing it where whenever I wanted to all, you know, all through young adulthood. Um, but the, you know, the, the depression hit me in junior high, um, as it does for a lot of people when, when, um, you start to kind of recognize some things for what they are, puberty hits, um, you know, like suddenly everybody is like in my school, like everyone was smoking pot and partying on the weekends from like eighth grade on up. Mm -hmm. Um, you included what's that? Were you, were you also? No. Um, I don't know if I just didn't get invited to the parties, but I was, I was too scared of mm -hmm. substances. Um, but, um, but I thought there is something weird going on with me where um, like I would start to cry over the smallest thing and then not even be sad about it anymore, but unable to stop crying. Mm. Like there was something wrong with my tear ducts or mm -hmm. something. Um, which I've come to find out is really common as a depression symptom. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I kind of struggled with that, you know, and, and, and I thought whatever is happening is so weird that, um, and nobody else talks about this, you know, um, I've, I had heard the word depression, but I thought it was just being mopey and mine wasn't that mine was just terror. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, fear. Yeah. Like unassigned fear, mm -hmm. um, fear of nuclear war, which was, you know, I was born in 68. So I was in junior high and like the, when the day after was on. Young people don't realize mm -hmm. that I think for all of us, maybe, I don't know what the, the, you know, the bookends year wise, but for a big chunk of us, we mm -hmm. walked around with this idea that like, we might just get vaporized. Like it's At all going to disappear. Yeah. Like that was a very, I remember being very young and my dad and asking my dad about that and then thinking like, how do I, so I guess I just go about my life and, but it's, we're, we're just going to like instantly be gone, but I won't be aware of it. But I mean, it's like, it's a very intense yeah. thing for a child to be aware of at all times. I had no reason to believe that I'd make it to college. I figured we'd all be vaporized by then. So scary. Yeah. Just the assumption that, that you're going to be wiped out. And so like, we would talk about the future and I'm like, well, you could talk about the future if you want, but you know, we're all doomed yeah. to this. And it was really did the, a feeling. Did the, I'm sorry, I just cut you off, but did the adults yeah. also like, 
this was our young people mind trying to make sense of it. But did did the adults also walk around thinking we're going to be vaporized? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, they were the ones making movies like The Day After. So it's hard to believe that they were really um, able to provide anything. But here's something I found out recently. Um, I, I would tell people, well, you know, <clears throat> South King County, where I – I'm from is where they built all all the planes for Boeing. Boeing Field is right is not too far away. Lots of the dads um, in my schools worked at Boeing, and we all said, "Well, but they're going to hit Boeing first. Mm-hmm. We're going to be the first to go because they won't want to build new planes." And then years later, a friend I met somebody from Alaska who said, "Well, at least when I was growing up, I knew Alaska would be the first to go." Because it's the closest to Russia. And then I would meet people from all over and everyone thought where they lived, they'd be killed first. Wow. And it was something that people took comfort in. Like being the most special? Yeah. Or like they wanted to believe that they'd suffer the least. Oh, I see. They, They wanted to believe that it would just be gone and they wouldn't have to hear that bombs hit other places. Mm -hmm. And... You know, my my wife is from Chicago, and she said, oh, yeah, no, we knew that it was going to hit the department store down the street. I said, the department store? <laughs> she, she said, yeah, they wouldn't do downtown Chicago because then half of it would go into the lake. It would be a waste. So they'd hit the west suburbs and just wipe out everything in it. And, you know, the center of that would be Weebolt's department store. <laughs> and I said, it just really, makes the, sense. Russians, the Russians were aiming for Weebolt. And <laughs> – but I think everybody found a comfort in it mm-hmm. and and would concoct all sorts of stories. And I finally did the research. Turns out, you know who was right? Nebraska. Why? Omaha. Because there's like Air Force bases and nuclear missile silos around mm. there. And so, yeah, I, I have a friend from Omaha who had told me that. And I had to call her back and say, you were right. They would have hit you first. <laughs> you narrowly su- survived. But what does that tell you about a generation rooting to be first. vaporized first? Yeah. That's true. I trauma. know. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So your depression as a young person manifested as, or not manifested, but y- you feel was, was a lot of, of fear. It was fear. It was... A lack of, you know, I I had people in my family who loved me a lot and who, you know, were wonderful. Um, But there was, there were issues that got in the way and an issue as big as alcoholism Mm -hmm. creates instability. And so I have always believed in a deep way still that nothing is truly stable. That's what it does to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done therapy. I understand it. Um, it's not a matter of getting over that thing um, because there is an embedded insecurity and an embedded um, lack of comfort where, and it's a real nasty curse because you could be, you could have the greatest of fortune smiled upon. You could have a happy home, you know, in a family that you have built where people love you and support you and are healthy. And part of you thinks 
it's not going to last. Mm-hmm. It could it could fall apart at any moment. Yeah. And you know, so you spot that and you do a little bit of work around it, but it's it's a real pest. Was the word alcoholism like when did you start using that word? Probably 16, 17 years old. Um because I think I mean, I knew what being drunk was, but my dad was, um, he wasn't a noisy drinker. Mm -hmm. He wasn't violent. Um, He would just sort of drift away. Like he was in the room, but he wasn't in the room. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't really have a conversation with him if he had been drinking. Um, I think he was very sad. Um, And so... I thought that's just what happened to him. That's just what happens to dads at night. <laughs> so it really took me a long time to figure it out. And so right around then I is when I said, oh, this is alcoholism. Mm-hmm. This is – that's what this is. And I was so angry. I was so furious for so long. I was just the angriest teenager. What was the anger about? felt like I'd been deceived. Mm. Um, and I was mad that I hadn't noticed it. I was mad at myself. And and he was a smoker too. And, and I was mad because I, you know, it was simpler for me at the time. Like, why are you smoking when you know it can kill you? Mm-hmm. Like, that's illogical. Just don't do that. Stop doing that, you know? And he would try to say it's, it's not as simple as just stopping. Mm. And he would stop drinking and stop smoking for stretches sometimes. Um, but that's, you know, the addictive mind is works in its own way. Um, and so, you know, I would do things like, like think, well, if I, if I dump out his gin and replace it with water, then it'll be fine when he drinks. And then he'll realize he doesn't really need it anymore. You know, like, we build that's, logic that's for those situations. That's yeah. heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Well, I'm heartbroken. Um, it was, you know, you build a, a, a function of logic um, for how it works. And I, I write about in the book, in Hilarious World of Depression, um, I would, when I was like 16, I'd borrow his car because I had my license. And I'd find a bottle um, in a brown paper bag, a bottle of vodka under the seat. And I would say, I know what happened. He had that um, in a grocery bag. And then when he was bringing the grocery bag out, it fell out the top. <laughs> it ricocheted like a John F. Kennedy bullet um, and got lodged under the seat. Naturally. That was the only explanation. Not that he, was, he had it on his way to work in the morning. Did you have him uh, on a pedestal, do you think? I think so. Um, I mean, he was super funny in this really dry Norwegian way. My my dad and my brother, actually both, in a way that I've never been able to deadpan like they have. Like, tell you a joke, and then three days later, you realize that it was a joke. Because <laughs> it was just so straight. And he was fun and he, you know, he liked having a son, he liked watching football. He liked, we liked watching, 
you know, Saturday Night Live if we if he could. Mm-hmm. Um, we liked watching cartoons, so we had a lot of fun. Um, but I just kept wanting to fix him, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and then now, like I'm, I'm at an age now where I think, oh, where was he in life when he was the age I am now? And you know, you. I mean, he's long since become a person to me. That's what happens with parents is they, at some point you realize they're just people. And I've tried to tell my kids this too. (laughs) I try to say like, look, we're improvising around Mm -hmm. here. (laughs) If, if you think that, that I've got all the answers or mom has all the answers, you know, we're on a journey too, and we're going to do the best we can. We're going to ask each other questions and we'll make mistakes. Um, But here's our intention. And, um, so yeah, but yeah, I, I held him on a pedestal. I held my brother on a pedestal sh- for sure. Cause he was my older brother. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I know you had OCD as well. So how yeah. did the, the depression, um, or fear and anger and the OCD sort of how, did, can you like chart how those, uh, how, you know, intense those were as you got older and like the highs and lows? Yeah, I mean, they all kind of came swarming at once to kind of, you know, big kickoff celebration, really, for <laughs> my mental health. Um, the OCD, I've never, uh, I had a really rough patch, you know, in those early days where I, you know, I had a friend who had two dogs and I had to make sure that I petted each dog equally. And if I turned around to the left, all the way around. I'd have to make sure I turned around the other way, all the way around. Um, Did people notice you doing these things? No, no. I never told anybody. In fact, I didn't tell anybody until I um, <laughs> I had this a fixation with the Groovy Ghoulies, which was an after-school cartoon. And I wanted to know the name of this song that they started playing on it just before I decided to walk outside and I walked outside and I thought, I'm never going to know that. I, you know, there's no DVR, there's no internet. I can't find out. And so it haunted me that I couldn't figure this out. And it was just, it became a, a recurring thought. Mm-hmm. And until I finally told a friend, you know, what's weird. I've got this recurring thought and it's really bugging. I kind of played it off as a joke or, you know, like, isn't that, crazy and he said yeah that's that's weird i'm sorry that that's happening that's so weird and then we talked about something else and then it was fine oh wow yeah amazing because he reckon and i've thanked him since i thanked him recently and he remembered it and all he did was validate it saying yeah that's weird Mm -hmm. and then he changed the subject to something else not consciously but just Cause, and it was like, yeah. And there's other things in the world too. Yeah. And, you know, young and malleable, uh, that was good enough in the moment. It doesn't work for everybody all the time. I wish it did. But, right. Um, it but that really out. speaks to how helpful it is to talk about these things that yeah. are plaguing us. Um, yeah. I totally relate to the groovy ghoulies thing. I, at different times in my life have trouble closing a book because uh-huh. there's too much importance placed on like, what's the last word I see? And then it can't be that. And then, but wait, yes. what happens after that? I mean, yeah. Yep. So I get it. Yep. Did you ever see um, 
Swimming to Cambodia, no. the Spalding Gray monologue. Mm-mm. The late Spalding Gray, who died by suicide. But um, he talks about he was up for a part in, I think it was the year of living dangerously or something. Um, or the Killing Fields. I think it was the Killing Fields. And he wanted to get this part in this movie, so he couldn't turn off the radio or the TV unless it was on a positive word. <laughs> I totally get that. So like, you know, weather will be stormy, click, nope, that's no good. You know, but temperatures going up, up is a good word, so mm-hmm. you can click it off then. Oh, I totally get that. So yeah. how how is your OCD nowadays? It's okay. Um, I I had a flare-up just at the beginning of COVID that I've got mostly under control. It bothered me for a while that I talked to plenty of people about, rather not go into it now. Um, but no, that's that's never been much of a factor. The um, The depression, the anxiety have been a factor. But with both of those, by the time even I got to high school and, and college, I mean, I had – I had a lot of things going my way. I went to a great college. I was happy there. I had a good experience there. I made a lot of friends. And it all just allowed me to stuff everything down. And it mm-hmm. would, you know, it would come bursting out sometimes. First ever panic attack was in college. I thought I was about to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really thought, you know, if you just ignore it, it's going to go away. But then when I was in my like early to mid thirties, married, mortgage, a career I needed to take seriously, kids, um, the stress piled up and I have a depression that responds to stress. Mm-hmm. Like I don't get nervous. I don't get jumpy. I certainly don't bear down. I just get really, really depressed. And that's when um, I got to a doctor and I got it diagnosed. When you feel that depression, though, do, do you feel numb and hopeless? Do you feel sad? What What do you feel? I feel I feel hopeless more than sad. Um, I feel like um, I've either let people down or I'm going to let them down. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, then the distortions start piling up. Like anything negative feels like the word of God and anything positive feels like an anomaly. Um, and, and I've trained my way around it. Like I've never, I did read the New York times review of my book, um, which was pretty good, but I don't read any Amazon or Goodreads reviews. Um, just cause I, you know, don't, I don't want to borrow trouble. Is that uh, hard for you to no. like that? It's easy. That one's easy. Yeah. Um, but like something as simple as I need somebody to email me back about this professional thing that I'm doing and they haven't written me back. Therefore they never will. I don't matter to them. They both hate me and don't care about me at the same time, which is, you know, that a depression brain will tell you that that's possible. Yeah. But what I've found is, I mean, I have a lot of ways that I've learned that work for me to manage those moments, but also a really effective thing I think is to have a little bit of hair of the dog, you know, to have a little bit of the vaccine, the virus built into the vaccine where I'm feeling that 
and I take some time to really feel it. Mm-hmm. It's been one of the most helpful things for me is, and, and it's, it's at the foundation of, of cognitive behavioral therapy too, where you don't approach it like, I feel bad. I better get rid of this feeling. You know, what, what can I do to blast this out of existence? You say, Oh, this is what I'm feeling. And you, you don't argue with it. You, but you don't get carried away with it. You kind of breathe it in, feel it, and then go about the process of inviting it to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talked with Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and she, she tells a story about um, the way she visualizes it with like, oh, there are birds in your barn. Okay, you can recognize that there are birds in your barn, but don't build a nest for them. <laughs> like. <laughs> you know, usher them out, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's, there's no point screaming. Right. So, so that's been, that's been very helpful to me because w- the idea of the cognitive behavioral therapy is that part is the cognitive is you say, Oh, I'm feeling despair. Here's what that feels like. Here's what that feels like in my neck. Here's what that feels like in my eyes. You know, here's what that feels like when I breathe it in and out. And then, when you're comfortable with it, not liking it, but comfortable knowing it, then you say, all right, now it's time for behavior. How do I elect to behave in this moment? What do I elect to do? Um, and, you know, I think I'll go for a walk. I think I'll take a shower. I think I'll, you know, take a nap. I think whatever it is that you're going to do, I think I'll read something. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, I think I'll watch a Bigfoot video on YouTube um, because that works for me. And, um, and you know, then you can, then you can go about your day. And, and I find that to be really great. Mm-hmm. Why Bigfoot videos, do you think? Well, it's, it's a Northwest thing because I had always heard that, that, uh, you know, that's where they had supposedly spotted it. That's where the, the Peterson Gimlin film of, of the the Bigfoot walking and turning around and looking at you kind of thing, runway pose moment. Um, mm-hmm. And so I figured, well, Bigfoot is is just around somewhere. And the, and like growing up in the seventies, like the six million dollar man had a Bigfoot episode, and it was a big thing. It was it was in the culture, and I think for me, it's the same way that I'm I'm interested in. I watch Bigfoot, ghosts, and UFOs, (laughs) and I'm not – I'm an agnostic on whether I believe them or not. Mm -hmm. Like, I figure, well, there's there's more to the world than we know, but, you know, I'm not going to jump on any video that gets slickly produced either. But to me, they all hint at a world beyond the world that we know, Mm -hmm. and I like that idea. I've always loved that idea. Of, I think I write about it in the book how, like, when I was a kid, I was thinking if I could spot a Bigfoot and follow it to its Bigfoot town and then just hang out there for a while and then go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, you know, and like all these UFO videos that are out there now, I'm like, I just, there's something going on. And, and to me, it's the same. Like, the other thing I do is we have a, an art cinema in Minneapolis. I'll go over there if I have time and go see a movie I've never heard of, some foreign language movie. 
I know nothing about before walking into the theater. And it's, it's like shakes loose some congestion of my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then it just, it's another world that I can get lost in for a while. Right. Um, that's really good that you, that you recognize when this happens and that you know yourself well enough to sort of know how to pull yourself out of it. I, I relate intensely to feeling both, uh, low, like rejected, loathed, and also invisible, like all at the same time. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it's, I can't remember who, Will Wheaton, I think, was explaining this to me of, uh, that we're all Luke Skywalker in our own story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to most everybody else, we're like Stormtrooper number 12, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, or the droid that never gets off the, the little Jawa thing. Um, that, you know, for most people are, are doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's hard to, it's hard to recognize, but it can be very comforting if you, if you've got it going the right way. Right. For me, it's been helpful to say, okay, where, where are these feelings coming from? Cause it's really, for me, it's not about this person who's not emailing me back. Like really that doesn't, that is such a small, has such a small amount of importance in, in my life. It's like I am, have turned the world into my parents and I am feeling like a child right now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is like the first time I felt invisible probably was something from my childhood. And that's for me, that's what I've realized it gets triggered. And then it like, somehow I find that liberating to, to bring it back to where it came from. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I mean, and how did you arrive at that? How did you build the, that skill to get to that? It's been – that has been a recent new bit of awareness that came out of the pandemic. It came out of – and I've talked about this on my mm. show. Um, I have this over-reliance on external validation, and I would be looking at Instagram, and I would see you know, someone got some great guest on their podcast, and yeah. instantly – a flood of like, they wouldn't do my podcast. And I hadn't even reached out to this person. You know, they wouldn't do my podcast. I'm nothing. I'm everyone hates me and I'm invisible. All the, you know, the things you mentioned. Um, and then I just was able one day to, to, to pause. I mean, I felt so like, like beyond, I mean, it's, it's not beyond depression, but like a very intense depression came out of that, all those automatic thoughts where it's like, I almost couldn't even sit up straight. I didn't have the words for, for any, I just felt like I just want to, I just felt like I want to just be flat. Um, I need to just get onto the ground. I feel so crushed by all this. And then I, I I had a moment of like, wait, wait a minute. If I'm going to feel this way, every time someone else gets attention, it's going to be a really miserable life for me. And, yeah. you know, what is this true? I was able to recognize, like, this is not, you know, these are distortions. Mm-hmm. And then I, I thought, kind of thought back to some exchanges that I'd had earlier in the week. And, like, did something make me feel this way earlier in the week? And it was, you know, I'd had a a, a text conversation with some people I'm related to closely. And it had... You know, there was a lot of feelings that came out of that, but I think I wasn't aware of them. And 
I don't know, that was sort of the beginning of me being able to um, th- think my way around, be, be less at the mercy of all the feelings that, that come from these triggers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a hell of a breakthrough. That's a really yeah. that's a really good thing. I mean, I I've been trying to tell people because it was a revelation to me because I also, you know, get hooked on that validation. Mm-hmm. Um to the point where I can't understand it sometimes when I receive it. Mm. You know, um we did a a wits live show because we're, we're kind of bringing wits back to life and uh I went out on stage and got a standing ovation before the show started because people were glad to have it back and Mm -hmm. glad to have me back, but I couldn't comprehend it. And I just sort of walked around the stage, not knowing what to do. Hmm. Like it didn't, didn't match your uh, conception of yourself. Yeah. But, but I also think back on, on something that I, I was talking to my therapist. This was a while ago now. And, and I was talking about book reviews and I said, well, I don't, you know, if I if I hear praise for the book, and and I think it was more about feedback because I do get feedback just from emails and messages and tweets. I said, but if I take in what the people who like it are saying about it, then I also have to take in what the people who didn't like about it are saying. And she said, "What? No, you don't." <laughs> and I said, "Well, yeah, of course you do because you know if one." With one, you got to take the other. And she said, well, why do you think that? What rule is that? And I'm like, what are you saying? Just just take the stuff that feels good and just don't – and just disregard the rest? She said, yeah. I love that. you did that? And I'm like, holy shit, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so much you know, better. Yeah. Yeah. You could just eat the ice cream. You don't have to have the liver too. Right. <laughs> you could just enjoy it. And, and, um, I, that's, that's helped me a lot of just, and, and I tell people that, like I tell well-known entertainers that, and sometimes they listen. And a lot of times they're like, yep, yep. Got to hear from the people who hate me. <laughs> it's I, weird. If I take in the people who love me, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put some credence in the people who hate me. They yeah. Really I mean, that, that is a, an axiom you hear. Like if you let the good in, I mean, if you b- listen Listen to the good. You have to also listen to the bad. I think no, you your don't. therapist is, is on to things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. I want to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. If you've listened to me for any amount of time or just know me socially, you know I am a big, big fan of therapy. Therapy has helped me immensely. Uh, it's helped so many people close to me and I recommend it. I remember some t- one, a long time ago, someone said in a comment and it was not, it was not meant to be a positive comment, but it was like, she thinks everyone should be in therapy. I added the tone of voice, but I kind of do think everyone should be in therapy. I think it would help pretty much anyone who's open to it. And a way to think of it is that it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It's kind of routine maintenance. And by the way, after the last couple of years we've had, I feel especially like everyone could, could use a little tune-up. Uh, but, you know, starting up with a traditional therapist right now can be really difficult. They have crazy long wait lists. So that's where BetterHelp comes in. 
because you can start with a therapist like quickly with them. You can get in a lot faster. It's It can be cheaper than traditional therapy. Financial aid is available. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start, start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Allison Rosen listeners. That's you guys get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash best friend. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash best friend. I also want to talk to you guys about Ring. I love the Ring Alarm. I love Ring. We have a Ring doorbell. I can't imagine life without uh, our Ring doorbell. And when we first moved into this house, I didn't even realize that Ring made an alarm. But my husband wanted to get an alarm system. And so I started doing some research. And I didn't want to do one of those one of those where they have to come out and set it up and it's like a whole, now you have a whole new relationship with a bunch of people. That's how it seemed to me at the time. And so I talked to a friend of mine who is the, okay, full disclosure, he straightens my hair and also cuts my hair uh, and occasionally does some light covering of the gray in my hair, if you must know. That's new, by the way, because I'm very young. So it seems weird that I would need to do that. But anyway, you know, we get, we get, he's like the consummate consumer. He researches everything. He's very sensible with his money more than I am. I think like he really does not want to overpay for anything. So I said to him, do you have an alarm system? And it's like, oh yeah, I just got the ring alarm. I love it. I set it up myself. It was like a needle scratch moment because I knew that I loved ring. Uh, So... I I said, what? I didn't even know that they have this. And he said, oh, yes, they do. This holiday season, deck the halls, walls, doors, and windows with the best deals of the year on the award-winning Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com forward slash best friend to get a great deal on a Ring Alarm security kit today. So I found out that they have a Ring Alarm, told Daniel. He went out and got it and set it up that day. Setup is easy. Daniel is handy, but even if he weren't handy, let's say it were me doing it, I could have done it myself. And then it works seamlessly with your other ring device. You don't need to have other ring devices, um, but it does work seamlessly with them. And it's just such a feeling of calm and comfort and security, knowing that your home, you can monitor your home from wherever you are, knowing that you're protected. Uh, it's really great. This holiday season, deck the halls, walls, doors, and windows with the best deals of the year on the award-winning Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com forward slash best friend to get a great deal on a Ring Alarm security kit today. That's ring.com forward slash best friend. Okay, we're back. So uh, tell me about Wits. So Wits was a show that uh, started at Minnesota Public Radio when I was there back in 2010. And it was originally just me interviewing um, authors, humorous authors. And then we kind of uh, brought in some musicians and we brought in musical guests. And then we started adding like little comedy sketches here and there. And it became a variety show that went from being a stage thing in St. Paul to being a, a radio show heard all around the country. Um and it was expensive because you had to you had to employ a lot of people to do these shows. I mean, this was a company that was doing a Prairie Home Companion, 
which at the time was being carried on every public radio mm-hmm. station. But, you know, I was the host and the head writer, and I don't know how to write mainstream stuff that's going to appeal to everybody. It's impossible to tell, and it's hard to do. So we did it for a few years um, until about 2015. And, you know, we would bring in a, a musician and a comedy guest. So it might be like uh, Neil Gaiman and Brandy Carlisle, um, Patton Oswalt and Amy Mann. Um, Amy Mann, yeah. And, um, and then we would kind of have fun, a little bit of interview little bit of improv, little bit of sketches, um, a few songs. And when that ended, it was so exhausting because we had to convince all these people to come out to St. Paul for not very much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a few shows in California too. Um, and it was a small enough show that I got kind of creatively exhausted by it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few years ago um, – we were approached. Uh, I was me and John Munson, who is the band leader. Um, John's best known for being in Semisonic, and um, we we were approached. Well, would you want to do a reunion show? And so we went out for coffee, and I said, "What if we took away all the parts we hated <laughs> and just did the parts we loved?" Same idea, same concept as we were talking about with praise and criticism. Right. I said, "I don't want to do long interviews. The improv things always dragged. Um, you know." I, I just I want more songs from artists. I want to just have fun, and and we wanted the same things, so we did a reunion show. We were set to do another one, and then COVID happened, and so we waited that out, and then just did another one this past October. Brought out Maria Bamford and Josh Ritter, and had a marvelous time, and uh, we're gonna keep doing them. Nice. So yeah. then you had wits. And then um, you created Hilarious World of Depression. Was that in 2016? Yeah. And what – can you talk a, a bit about the genesis of that show? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I I lost my brother to suicide in 2007. Mm. Um, he had um, been – I'm trying to think the best way to phrase it. I'm not getting choked up. I'm just – it's complicated. Um he was addicted to substances, mm-hmm. uh, narcotics, and then spent many years as a uh, hotline counselor for Narcotics Anonymous mm. when people were tempted to use again. And he, he would be the one who talked to. He was clean at that point? Well, that's been the prevailing opinion is that he was clean at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you just never really know with addicts because right. they can be – Incredibly tricky, and my brother was incredibly charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and but basically, he believed he could talk to people and talk about their lives and remind them in a very, you know, important way that their lives were worth living. He couldn't believe that about himself because he kept his depression really secret, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know he was depressed until he died. And, um, I didn't know that pretty much anywhere there's addiction, there's depression. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of recovering addicts have told me that. And so he died, and I thought, well, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a therapist. I can't help this situation, 
but I can talk into microphones and I can string a sentence together. So I started writing about it and tweeting about it when that became a thing and, and talking wherever I could about how depression, about mental illness can kill you. So you should go get that checked out. You know, yeah. if, if there's a electrical problem in your house, call a professional or you could get killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I gravitated to, I've always been a comedy nerd, um, comedy writer, sometimes comedy performer, done a little stand up. But I found that a lot of the people I gravitated to had a history of depression. A lot of comedians do. And so the idea was to get comedians on to talk about their experiences with depression, have a few jokes along the way because they're comedians, but also take advantage of the fact that they're gifted at explaining things. You know, the the old line about they say what we're all thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to use that instead of doctors because I thought, you know, to hear Patton talk about it or Maria Bamford, um, that they could they could tell it in a more personal way that would also create more downloads because you know, who doesn't want to hear from Maria on a show? Yeah. Um, and, and then after doing the show for a while, I, I worked in some, uh, singer songwriters that I knew like, you know, cause who can touch your heart about this stuff more than Amy Mann or mm-hmm. Nico case, um, you know, who can phrase these things that just connect with you. And I honestly thought the the idea was good, but just kind of weird. I didn't expect to do more than a handful of episodes before moving on to something else. But what I didn't realize was that people were just starving to talk about this stuff because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're taught in our society and in our generation growing up, certainly to not talk about it. And you know, the, the response was so overwhelming, much more so than anything else I've done. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, either I just became a much better writer or <laughs> people really want to talk about this. And I think it's like the, it's like the, it's like what we did with littering or cigarettes or drunk driving. Like we're not going to solve it, but we can make it better than it is now. It's kind of an echo of when you started speaking in your real speaking voice and things took yeah. off. Like here's a show that's really infused with, with the real you. Yeah. Whereas it sounds, well, it, sounds like with wits, you were, you took more of a, uh, not supporting role, but, but less like straight John Moe. Yeah. Right? Well, it was, and it was, you know, the, the side of me that, that makes up, abstract comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the part of me that um, just makes this the thing I want to talk about the rest of my life mm-hmm. is, is from a, you know, from a, from a different place. And um, people sometimes will say, well, how can you ask somebody? I just had Tom Sharpling on the show and I'm like, okay, tell me about your time in the institutions when you were in high school. And I think I got to a lot of that stuff early. Usually I build up to it. I got, I got it with him right away. And I'm like, I, I'm going somewhere with this and we'll get to the jokes. Um, people say, well, how can you just ask people about those things that you're not supposed to talk about? Mm. And I always say, well, I forget that you're not supposed to, but it's kind of my go-to line. But what I'm kind of realizing now is like, 
because I'm furious, because I'm so angry. That it, that at what? At a choice, and it is a choice that society has made to not talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, to like we can talk about it and it can get better, or we can not talk about it and it can get worse. And we're choosing not to talk about it. And that choice killed my brother. Mm. You know, he's dead now because of that choice. And lots of people are dead now because of that choice. And fuck that, you know? Um, and so I, I think that, that that defiance and that, I don't even know what it is. I guess it's anger mm-hmm. kind of powers a lot of the work I do. Cause I'm, I'm just, it's like being ripped off on a real grand scale. Yeah, you know? on an existential scale. Yeah. Have yeah, you we got burglarized? You mentioned people saying, like, you know, how can you ask these people, ask people these things? Have you ever had a guest uh, bristle at a question or have that reaction? I've had guests not want to answer questions. And um, I usually just take that part out, the, the question mm-hmm. and them saying, I don't want to ask unless it leads to something else. Um, but they mostly know what they're getting themselves in for. And I'll, and I'll say before we start, like, is there somewhere you don't want to go with this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll say like, yeah, I'd like to leave my marriage out of it, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but mostly they, they roll with it fine. Um, and yeah, my, my mom at one point said, do they ever, do the guests ever write to you later because they're so mad at you that <laughs> You talked about these things. I said, no, they, they showed up knowing what I was doing. Usually, and usually they're really grateful and because they get this sudden, you know, flood of positive response from their fans. I take it your mom does not want to talk openly about this stuff. She's come a long way. I mean, she's, she's about to turn, I don't know if she probably won't want to tell me, want me to say how old she is. She's has she's a birthday her, coming up. Yeah. And she's well into her 80s. Mm-hmm. And um and she's come a long way. Um because there are things in the book that are really painful um about my perspective and about you know her husband mm-hmm. and about her and about her childhood. Um but she she didn't say no to anything I wanted to put in the book, including some very grim stuff about her and her family. Did you uh, ask her permission? Like how, how did that conversation go? My, my philosophy was if it happened to me, if it happened while I was in the room, then it's my story to tell. Mm-hmm. If it didn't, I want the permission of the person who it happened to. And there's a story in the book about her sister, um, dying during a Norwegian winter Mm. and they couldn't bury her because it was a Norwegian winter and there was no room at the cemetery. So they, they opened the doors and windows of part of the house so she could freeze and be kept there for a few days before they could do something and how she was sent in to kiss her sister. Good night. Every night. Oh, I know this is when they were kids. This is when she was probably six years old. Oh, my gosh. Oh, your poor I know. mom. And I said, I said, I think this story tells a lot 
about trauma that people carry. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I don't want to put it in there for sensationalism, but I think it's really instructive and I think it'll really help people. And she said, okay, use it. And then when the book came out, she was terrified, but she got a copy of the book. My, my dad passed away in 99. Mm-hmm. She got a copy of the book, kept it in her closet in her apartment. And then the next day she'd put it a little closer to the closet door. And then each day she let the book inch closer to her in the living room until she finally could pick it up and read it. And then she loved it. And then she bought it for all her friends. Oh, that's so great. Did that must have made, did that make you feel good? Yeah. That made me feel really good. Cause I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to hurt people, Mm -hmm. but the, the mission of what I want to tell and the truth that I want to tell and the urgency of it to me is, is more important. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think she understood that and that was really good. That's really wonderful. Um, so hilarious world of depression and then now depression mode. How do those, is the, is it a continuation of this, the same show just independent now? It's similar. It's similar. I mean, I, I, when I got laid off, they didn't let me take the show with me, which Sucks. I found to be unfortunate. Um, but I, I honestly thought then too, I was so, yeah, the idea of, of living by download numbers and subscriber numbers and hoping that you have enough to please somebody enough to write you checks is an exhausting way to live and it feels pretty powerless. Mm-hmm. And so I very nearly took that severance money and went to grad school to get a degree in, in counseling and become a therapist. And I thought, why don't I just help one person at a time <laughs> instead of however many thousands or millions are listening to the show. Right. And, um, and then, you know, I, I also talked with, some of the bigger networks, some of the commercial networks, some of the public radio stations. And Jesse Thorne from, from Maximum Fun, who I had known forever, you know, called me on the day I got laid off and said, you know, we'd love to have you over here. We'd, we'll make a home for you here. And, you know, I finally got back to him with, you know, more conversation. He said, look, why don't you own the show? Why don't you start your own company? We'll be your partner. You won't be an employee of us. And everything you make, you'll own forever. And that's that's his philosophy as a maker himself. Mm-hmm. And he said, then when you want to write a book, you won't have to cut in some company on it. If you want to make a TV deal, um, you could just go make a TV deal. And that sounded really great to me. And so this show is is similar except it's every week instead of maybe 20 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. And it's more than just depression. Depression tends to be at the root of a lot of things. Um, you know, either as a as a symptom or the problem. Mm-hmm. Um but we talk about, you know, there's we've talked about OCD, we've talked about um depersonalization, derealization disorder. We've talked about uh, anxiety disorders. Um, we've talked about eating disorders and 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 uh, you know, body dysmorphia issues, postpartum issues, and um, what it's really emerged as is less like a place to hang out for depressed people, as 
an examination of how people get through this world and and who face mental obstacles, especially ones that they can name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, somebody said it at one point uh, when I was making shows like this, they said, well, isn't it depressing to talk <laughs> about this stuff all the time, to talk about people's problems all the time? And I said, well, it can be, but I think it's also – inspirational because it's all comeback stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's people who've talked about problems that they've had and then maybe they've overcome them. Maybe they're still fighting. Maybe they're just knowing what they are, but that's inspirational no matter what because they're facing them and they're naming them and they're saying them out to the public. And, um, and it, you know, and I'm, I get to learn, I get to learn stuff all the time. Um, so it's been great. Yeah. It's really, it's really a service you're providing. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, when we talked, it was a really meaningful conversation, I think, in a lot of ways. But um, when I when I listened back to it, because I'll listen back to the episode, there was a lot that I, I was like, I – sometimes the discovery is what you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like, instead of saying, oh, I understand this, you're like, I don't get this. Mm-hmm. And – I realized, okay, well, let's see who I am. You know, I'm a cishet, white, middle-aged guy in the Midwest. And, you know, the, the issues that that Allison runs into as a, a woman in media in America today, I can't, I can't really understand. I don't know what it's like to be black in America. I don't know what it's like to be gay or trans in America. And... Um, and hearing that is funny. I, after the interview, um, my wife said, well, how did it go? And I said, oh, it was, it was great. And she talked about some of these issues that I just don't understand. And she said, oh, I understand those issues. We're talking about weight, body stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Weight and body stuff and scales mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, um, you know, and professional relationships with, with men and women, um, it was it's it's been great because what happens is that each conversation I have a theme kind of emerges as you go along, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that doesn't reveal itself till you kind of uh, dust it off and like trim off the parts that that you don't need and you're like oh I see what the whole arc of this thing right is. right yeah I gotta say you're making this is very very much behind the scenes but you're making me go like. But should I be doing a an edited show where there's <laughs> you know tracking and and all that kind of stuff? Because it really, I mean, it really flows really well the way you do it. Whereas I'm just like, here's the whole thing. Well, people love what you do, so <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I mean, it's less I, work. It's less work. I've actually had the idea, and I, I've begun to sniff around on it a little bit because I I would do. I did Jordan and Jesse go on Max Fun Network. Mm-hmm. I'm like, here are two guys sitting around joking around with their friends. I should do a show like that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like the uh, the Hey pressure. Guys, What's Up show. <laughs> um, so I don't know, but but it takes all kind. I mean, that's that's part of the beauty of what we do is mm-hmm. that is yeah. that uh, different formats people are bringing. So I have some questions that people have sent in. I am on Patreon, 
patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Uh, all sorts of fun stuff there. You can get bonus episodes of the friend zone, Zoom parties. There's a level where you can text me and I will text you back. Uh, you can watch the Thursday show video, this particular video. This one you can go, go to youtube.com slash Allison Rosen. You can see this and other Monday shows. Um, and also if you subscribe, so, excuse me, I stumble over this every time, even though I say it all the time. Uh, <laughs> if you sign up for an annual subscription, you get two months free. So it's 12 months for the price of 10. It's quite a deal. And one of the perks is you can uh, submit questions for the guests and they get read first. So let's see what people want to know from, okay. from John Moe. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay, Whitney C. says, How are you with change? Parentheses, roll with it when things change. Hate it when things change. Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Um, when we moved from Seattle, um, where I grew up, to Minnesota in 2008, apparently it was traumatic because I still have dreams about moving across the country mm. two to three times a week. Wow. So I'm doing poorly on that change, apparently, <laughs> although I'm glad to be in Minnesota. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I think having kids helps with that kind of thing. Because like, oh, let's get you off to kindergarten. Oh, what college are you applying to? Happens pretty rapidly. Does it? <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, so now, you know, now I'm kind of rolling with it. So. Yeah, medium to good, I would say. Does it really happen fast? Mine, mine are age four and two, and it's it, hard for it's me to slow. even imagine them being adults, even though it's exciting too. It picks up speed, I would say. I remember when my kids were that age, and people would say it goes so fast, and I would hate those people <laughs> because I'm like, I'm on the floor playing Busy Town, and I don't want to be. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, when you look back, it it's a lot shorter than when you look forward. Mm -hmm. When you look forward, it seems completely distant. I just sent off the second of three kids to college this fall. So wow, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, okay. Lynn says, I still miss weekend America with the reboot oh. craze. Would you have any interest in reviving it? <laughs> Probably not. It was a great, it was a show that filled a need that didn't actually exist. Uh, it was a, <laughs> Like a weekend, all things considered, weekend edition kind of thing, but a little weirder, a little quirkier. Um, that I that I worked on for a long time and hosted briefly just before it got canceled. Um, massive operation, tons of people, so probably not really tenable. But uh, but there were some elements in there that we had fun with, and the the executive producer who hired me for that show is still a good friend and plays guitar in the band that I sing in. Oh, so, nice! What's what's the name of your band? Math emergency. Our bass player and drummer are both math professors. I love it. Okay, Lynn <laughs> says, also, this is not a question, but a comment. Thank you for talking about mental health. I hope that with podcasts like yours, we can normalize talking about it and recognize when someone may be struggling. Thank you. Um, that's why I'm doing it. And I, I want to make talking about a mental health issue no different than talking about a sore knee or a, a toothache. Yeah. I feel like there's not much stigma around, or maybe it's where I live, but I don't find there to be a lot of stigma around therapy anymore. And there was for a long time. 
it's a lot better than it used to be. It's still, it's still very much there. You know, I give a lot of speeches in the upper Midwest and, you know, I get the guy in overalls farmer coming up yeah. to me afterwards with tears in his eyes. Or, you know, I gave a speech to the Minneapolis snowplow drivers. There are many and they are large men. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I don't think those guys are used to crying, right. especially at work. And, um, you know, so it's, it's out there. I think it is getting better. I think, Good. you know, got a ways to go. Okay. Nick Wester PI says, I'd like to know his preferred hot dish recipe, at least <laughs> what he puts in it. Although if he wants to give time and temperature as well, I'll take it. I'm, I'm more of an eater than a maker. I, I, um, my, my wife and I have, if you get some good albacore tuna, mm-hmm. um, she's got this great hot dish recipe for, you know, that involves sharp cheddar cheese and albacore tuna, which doesn't sound like it would work, but it does. We, when we had been here 10 years, we had a, we had a hot dish potluck. Hot dish is casserole. Okay. Thank you. Just, I was, I was going to ask, but it's the same thing. Okay. Um, but it's a big thing here. You know, you, you come over to someone's house, you got to ring the doorbell with your elbow because they're holding a hot dish. <laughs> right. And um, so we had a hot dish party because we still thought it was kind of kitschy. Mm-hmm. And, and we said, bring your favorite hot dish. Well, you know, we'll have a contest. People can vote. And our friends, the hipsterest of our friends showed up with meticulously prepared hot dishes. <laughs> what they've waited all year for. Very seriously. Yeah. And we're like, oh, we we were joking, <laughs> but nobody else is. <laughs> um okay. Joe Mallon says, why did he not go with depression mode M O E D? Are you familiar with the term hat on a hat? Yes. Yeah. Too You've much. You made the joke once. Don't put another joke on top of the joke. Did you consider it though? Not really. Um, because also a joke that you have to s- literally spell out for people right, is right. probably not going to succeed. Wendy Molyneux, ask him what his favorite thing about me is. Oh, you know Wendy, right? Oh, I went to college with Wendy. Did you? Yeah, and and she's a frequent guest on my Thursday group show. There so, you go. Yes, I do. Well, Wendy's uh, Wendy Molyneux is uh, the big boss I think at Bob's Burgers yeah. is that the we'll just uh, say she's, that she she's and the, the big boss North. at the Great North yeah I mean and yeah. she also is a boss at Bob's Burgers she's a boss yeah. she's a boss all the time she, that's right <laughs> um, she's one of my heroes from from McSweeney's um, oh she and I are kind of part of the old school McSweeney's crew it's like Wendy Molyneux me yeah. John Hodgman uh, Tim Carvel who's the EP on mm. on John Oliver's show now. Like we're, you know, we're the old guard. Right. I wrote um, for McSweeney's a little bit back then for did you? Wendy. Uh, it was via Wendy and it was Christopher Monks. Yeah. Chris Monks. Yeah. 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 He's still there. He's still Oh, really? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, I'm a gray beard there. And then she wrote for Wits. She wrote a lot of amazing sketches. Um, she and her husband both actually um, were, were Wits writers. So nice. Yeah. I am in awe of when the best thing about Wendy Molyneux is all the things. <laughs> um, you kind of answered this already, but Matt J, what are the prospects for more wit shows? We're going to do more wit shows. People like them. We're not going to do 25 a year, but we might do two to four a year. And uh, 
we're exploring ways to um, get the recordings of those out to the general public. We will find a way, I promise. Wonderful. Uh, okay, this, this is a lot of questions in one question. Awesome. Here it comes. Tom Sherman wants to know, what are the most moving quotes he's heard back from his listeners, from his readers, and then has anyone changed careers or chosen a major because of the importance of the work on depression after hearing or reading John? Last one, I don't know. And we can um, assume yes. In let's droves. go with yes. Yeah. Um, I don't remember exact phrases or quotes, um, but I know, you know, I, I know a lot of people have said that that I've saved their lives, and they're wrong. Um, and this is I, I tell this story a lot. And I do that. Apologies to people who've heard it, but it's important. Um, when people started to say that my work was saving their life, I got nervous because, like, what if I made a show that sucked instead? <laughs> you know, like, then their blood is on my hands. Um, and I didn't really know how to handle it. And I went to, I was talking to John Darneal, who's the singer for the Mountain Goats, mm-hmm. who is often the entire band of the Mountain Goats, because he writes very moving stuff and, and, I said, people must tell you this. And he said, yeah, they do. And they're wrong. He said, what we do is we're artisans. We create tools. People use those tools, whether they're songs or podcasts or whatever, books, to help themselves. But we're just making the tools. And I think people who will say that I saved their life are or were in a position where they didn't realize how powerful they were that they could save their own lives. Um, And I'm happy to have made a a hammer or a Mm -hmm. jigsaw or something to help them with that. I actually am saving lives, but if you want to look at it that way. (laughs) Alison Rosen saved your life. (laughs) No, I I think that's, uh, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um. Okay, and then, let's see. I thought he was going to ask, what are the most moving quotes you've heard from guests of the show? But are there things you've heard from guests that like run through your mind a lot? I mean, every, every story is, is kind of a journey. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. I, 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 um, I mean, to me, the the ones that are really surprising is, is when I meet people who I've admired for a long time and then interview them and kind of realize how, how just their own, their own uh, path, they're perfectly human people on their own path. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, so it's, it's interesting to me sometimes how I, will relate or not to not relate to people. And it surprises me sometimes. Um, like Nico case who I adore, who's a friend. Um, but like, I'm not as no human is as cool as Nico case. This is like, she's, true. The, she's the most coolest. badass person yeah. around, but we got into a conversation about this one stretch of road on the Olympic peninsula, North of where she grew up and kind of South, west of where i grew up and we were both like that's where all the murders happen right yeah yeah that's either they're happening there now or they've happened before and if you can't find any it's just because they were concealed <laughs> and and so it's like suddenly 
this woman whose music I had been listening to for years and years and years, I'm just, I can just talk murder roads with her. <laughs> so that's, that's the stuff that tends to, to stay with me. Right. Um, those little moments. Uh, let's do a round of just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Uh, you have a just me or everyone, right? I do. Um, well, I, I, I've had a couple. I, 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 um, I thought about the thing where you feel ashamed of something and then you space out what it was you were ashamed about, but you still have the shame and then you feel bad. You feel relieved about not being ashamed of that thing, but then you feel bad about being forgetful about the thing you were supposed to be ashamed of. Yes. (laughs) I'll have that. I'll have this just like floating feeling of like, for me, it's less, less shame than concern, worry. Sometimes I'll have the shame thing, the like, Oh, I just remembered something that I feel embarrassed about, but it's more like I know I was worrying about I was in the middle of worrying about something. What was it? Yeah. What was it? And then you feel like if I don't remember it, it's going to compound. <laughs> yes, because um, I was doing so I was I was he- alleviating the situation by thinking about it. I was making such progress <laughs> by idly fretting. Um Exactly. But the 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 main one I have though is is at uh, first I misunderstood the assignment. I I was going to go with when you have an ice cream bar and you have the wrapper, you wrap the wrapper tightly around the bottom of the ice cream bar. So if you get drips, it won't hit your fingers. That is but not, know- that's not misunderstanding the assignment. Cause you, that's a question as well of if other people do that and they probably do. But I know I've never met anyone else who does it. I learned it from my dad when I was like five and I've stuck with it ever since my kids refuse to adopt it. My wife thinks I'm, I'm crazy. So, but my main one I was going to go with is the phone, which is when you get a phone call and you see the number and it says, you know, some city or you don't know who it's from. Is it me or does everyone think there's terrible news that this person is going to tell me? Somebody important to me is dead. They've lost their phone in the car accident they were just in. They were borrowing a phone from the stranger, mm-hmm. from a stranger. They're going to tell me about someone else being dead or their own impending death, or it's some creditor to whom I unexpectedly owe thousands of dollars uh, for reasons I do not recall or was negligent about remembering. Um, and, and then, you know, the sensible brain comes in and says, it's a spam call. It's telemarketing. Yeah. It's the extended rebate on the car call. Um, and and so then I, I try to reassure myself with that. And that worked for a while until, and I won't go into a lot of details on this, it was one of those first calls. Um, a, someone close to me uh, had been in a very bad situation mm. um, with violence in it oh, geez. and was calling me on a borrowed phone. Oh, so it actually happened? It happened. And did you not and answer And now it? I'm like, I didn't answer it, and then they called back immediately, and then I answered it. Um, but now I'm like, well, crap. <laughs> yeah. Now, got, now, I mean, the problem is less than that person encountered, but still. But still, um, because now you're you're the person. Now it's no longer irrational. You were struck by lightning. So yeah. now people, you know, can't use that phrase. Oh, yes. wow. That's 
I'm just taking a but, moment to like soak in the fact that this thing that you were afraid of actually happened. happened. But also, generally, what kind of monster calls you on the phone app from your phone? Right. Like of all the ways to get in touch with someone. I had a friend. He's still a friend. I don't know how we survived this. But a few years ago, he called me. He lives in Minneapolis. I live in St. Paul. And I kept waiting for him to get around to the point of why he was calling. Allison, he was just calling to visit. You got to state that up front. That you right? got to lead with that. I was waiting for the payoff. Right. <laughs> but right about the time he was asking how my kids were, I'm like, wait a second. What a, Are we what visiting? Old-fashioned situation. Did we lose a is. war? What is yeah. going on here? Yeah. I don't have that with random numbers, especially when they cut, because I have a New York area code and I get a mm. lot of spam calls from a New York area code. Mm -hmm. And so those I'm pretty confident in not answering. But if I get a call from an un, no, from a unknown number or blocked, yeah. it's funny how nowadays unknown or blocked, that like usually is a doctor's office calling or like my dad yeah. or something like that. So those will make me nervous. Um, or my mom usually texts, texts. So if I see her call, I get this like blossoming of panic because I think something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and she'll butt dial me often. So I'm like, you've got to mm. be kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, <sighs> phone calls. I get yeah. a lot of butt dials and I always somehow assume it has to do like my understanding has been because my name is starts with an A and maybe I'm in I'm the first number in someone's phone. Oh but yeah. Actually, that could be. But do you get a lot of butt dials? Not really. Oh, no. Maybe it is that then. Yeah, let's go with that. All right. And then uh <laughs> let's do a Hago hey, fuck yourself. All right. Well I almost went with Sammy Hagar. Um because I'm I'm still mad that he replaced David Lee Roth mm. in Van Halen. Um and took and replace you know brought in quality vocals but lost the self-mocking joie de vivre yeah but then that's not sammy's fault that's what sammy does and it was more just eddie wanting to create those songs that were a little more joyless and a little more technically proficient but i gotta let that go <laughs> but i'm gonna stay with lead singers and my answer is don henley of the eagles oh no so you gotta explain why though it's not self-evident. <laughs> no. Does it really require? Okay, fine. <laughs> Don Henley of the Eagles. Um, it could be self-evident. I mean, we could leave it that, it but I would be. like to hear. I would like to hear. Okay, why. yeah. Among the reasons, I don't think. Uh, I don't think things worked out in a very nice way with him and Stevie Nicks, mm -hmm. and anyone who hurts Stevie hurts my soul. But, and then also, uh, in. The Eagles documentary that at least was on Netflix, which is the most profoundly entertaining accidental comedy I've ever seen of because it is all about two people, um, Glenn Fry and Don Henley. I'm not going to speak ill of the dead. Glenn Fry has passed on um, who are just so convinced of their own brilliance and so uh, blind to the rest of the world and the fact that other people might have needs and wants as well. And when they make people so mad that those people quit or are forced out of the band, they cannot comprehend why. But really, 
it comes down to one of the last Henley Fry uh, collaborations not too long ago, uh, not that many years ago. They put out a song called Get Over It, which was all about how when people are faced with trauma from earlier in life or when they're upset about things, uh, when they're, they feel offended, when they feel discriminated against, they should just get over it. Ick. That was their song. And, um, it's, it is, uh, an impossible thing to do and also not a useful thing to do because it implies that, that you should just pretend that nothing really ever matters because it is convenient to the, uh, wealthy and unflawed Don Henley, uh, who still tours, still on tour recently, um, with some remnants of the Eagles playing the Hotel California album. Also, forever letting Hotel California into this world. (laughs) Uh, That's another reason. In fact, they were playing at the Excel Center, the Excel Energy Center in St. Paul when we did our last Wits. And I had the idea that after our show, their show would probably still be going on. So I was going to take the thousand people from our audience, plus our, our cast and crew, and just go over there and just beat the shit out of the Eagles. <laughs> just rush the stage, go up there, and just pound them. Go after Henley first. He's got a big drum kit. I don't, actually, I don't think he does. I think he has other people play drums now because he's not athletic enough to do it. And we could just take out Don Henley once and for all. Not kill him, but maybe make him stop performing because he'd be afraid of people like us. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think that he thinks he's a better singer than he is. I think he's a pretty good singer, but too reedy, I think. And, um, also, uh, I can't remember. There was some song that Mike Campbell of the, of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers brought to him and he rejected it and it was a good song, but I can't remember what it was. And, um, yeah, it's just, I I find myself with an irrational, ongoing, burning enmity towards Don Hanley. I won't say hate, but uh, rage. I'll go with rage. So, hey, Don Henley. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. John, it's been so nice talking with you. Thank you so, so, so much for coming on the awesome. show. Such a delight. Such a delight to have your friendship and, and to join you on, on your show. Tell everyone where they can find you and what they should look out for. Plug your plug your things. The internet. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm at John Moe on Twitter. I'm at John Moe on Instagram. Um, Google Depression Mode and you'll find us or go to MaximumFun.org and navigate from there. Um, my book is called The Hilarious World of Depression. And it is available in stores. I recently found out that it's selling well, which was delightful news. So read that um, and pass that around when you're done reading it, because somebody you know could probably benefit from it. And uh, and yeah, that's uh, that's me. Yes, I will link to it in the episode summary. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, you. please make sure to leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. Five stars is my favorite number. I period- periodically read some comments on the show. And make sure you're following me on Twitter and Instagram at Allison Rosen. And make sure you're subscribed or following or whatever it's called in your app of choice so that you get the episodes automatically. You don't miss out. Tell you, When you're passing around John's book, also, just tell your friends about my show and about his show. Just... 
Just tell, tell people, your friends about shows. Tell your friends about shows, specifically ours. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very much. Uh, what am I forgetting? I think that I think that we did it. I think we did All it, right. John. Oh my gosh. Hooray. You guys, thank you so much for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen is your new best friend.